Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 303 with Fred Kaufman. Fred makes an excellent case for how purpose makes all the difference and how to connect to it and unleash its power. So you'll learn one, the first hurdle to working in a group, two, how to find the inspiration in your work, and three, how to solve the problem of disinformation. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, you'll find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F303. Now here's Fred's story. Fred Kaufman is a leadership advisor at Google and former vice president of executive development and leading philosopher at LinkedIn, where he worked with top CEOs and executives around the world. Born in Argentina, Kaufman came to the U.S. as a graduate student where he earned his PhD in advanced economic theory at UC Berkeley. He taught management accounting and finance at MIT for six years before forming his own consulting company, Axiolent, and teaching leadership workshops for corporations such as General Motors, Chrysler, Shell, Microsoft, and Citibank. At its height, his company had 150 people and created and taught programs to more than 15,000 executives. Shell Sandberg writes about him in her book, Lean In, claiming Kaufman will transform the way you live and work. So thanks to Fred for sharing his time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Fred. Fred, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Uh, my pleasure, Pete. Well, I'm so curious to hear. So you had a nice run there as the vice president of executive development at LinkedIn, and you just recently made a switch. What are you up to now, and what's the story? Well, I'm now an advisor for leadership development at Google. Well, the story is, I would say, a transition but along the same line, uh, I've been with LinkedIn for five years. They are like, oh, I feel that they're all my brothers and sisters. And it was a, an amazing opportunity that uh, Jeff, the CEO, gave me to work with all of them. Uh, but after five years, I think I've worked with almost every executive in the company. Uh, so my mission was fulfilled. I had shared what I can do and what I can help people learn. And I felt the like the value of my contribution was going to start uh, diminishing quickly because uh, it would be mostly repeats or tweaks. Whereas there were a lot of other organizations that could use that and I wanted to offer my gift more broadly. So I agreed uh, with the people in LinkedIn that I would be out in the market and combine the work I did with them with some work that I would do for other companies. And then when I went out, some people from Google asked me if I could consider doing uh, a, a more extended engagement with them, a project that would be more absorbing. And I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. So I just accepted and um, I'm, I'm here. So I'm beginning this project of uh, leadership development or advising them in the area of leadership development. Very cool. Well, I, I've been enjoying digging into your book a little bit, The Meaning Revolution. Could you give us how do you conceptualize it in terms of what's the big idea behind the book and, and why is it important now? There's a fundamental problem that every person that is trying to work with a team has to solve. It, it, it starts you know, with a couple, just two people or, or a family, a small team, and it's the same problem that an organization with hundreds of thousands of people will have. And that's to try to combine or integrate the need to have each person be accountable to do what they're supposed to do, and also the need to have each person cooperate 
for the achievement of the common goal. And this seems obvious. You want a group of people that work together. Every company wants the same thing. We want people to work together and uh, each person doing uh, what they're supposed to do. Uh, but there's a hidden problem with this. There's an incompatibility between these two imperatives. And that is that if you evaluate people based on their what's called OKRs or KPIs, which are the key results or key performance indicators, people are going to focus on their own individual jobs. Indeed. And they won't really collaborate with others. And they will even build silos to make sure other people don't don't prevent them from doing what they need to do. So today we live in a in an illusion where people think they are getting paid or that they are hired to do what they call their jobs, but they're all wrong. Every person is wrong when they say my job is you know accounting or my job is sales or my job is engineering. I think uh, everybody's job is to help the company succeed just like every player's job is to help the team win. But, you know, the defensive player will think that his or her job is to stop goals. And the offensive player will say, my job is to score. Um, That's not wrong, but it's not true either. Uh, The job is to help the team win. You normally do your job as a defensive player by stopping the other team from scoring. But at in some instances, under some conditions, it would be better for the team if you left your position and you went forward and tried to score. For example, if you're losing 1-0 with five minutes to go. So it's a typical strategy that teams will send the defensive players to the offense to try to tie the game. But if a person thinks, oh, no, no, my job is just to defend, they will not want to go forward. And the same thing happens in a company. If you feel that your job is to reduce costs, you are going to be less interested in satisfying the customer because it could be expensive to satisfy the customer, even though the best thing for the company to achieve its mission would be to pay attention to the customer. Or if um, like if you're, if you're in customer retention, I tell the story in the book about uh, somebody that was trying to sign off from Comcast and saying, you know, I don't want your service. Oh. <laughs> it, 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 went, it went viral because that was a crazy right. conversation. It lasted like 10 minutes with a the customer Cancel service. the account. <laughs> Cancel. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> exactly. So uh, that, that costed Comcast tens of millions of dollars in brand uh, loss, in, the, in, the, in brand, I would say, destruction. So this was a, a stupid trade-off that a person made because they think, well, they have a a performance indicator that is how many people uh, cancel the service during your time when you're on the phone. And uh, the less people that cancel their service, the better your performance. So, of course, you're going to try to convince everybody not to, and you'll even, you know, try anything to the point that you're going to upset the customers and then create a brand disaster for Comcast. Right. Well, so then... That's making a lot of sense in terms of your job is broader than your job description, whether it's to prevent customers from leaving or, or, or whatnot. And so then at the same time, you know, given that 
there are perhaps thousands of things that an organization needs to do in order to succeed. And you got to have some degree of division of, of labor and responsibility. So how do you, how do you think about that appropriate balance between folks sort of executing on their key performance indicators versus doing whatever is necessary to help the organization win? Yeah. Uh, that's what the book is about. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's not a balance. It's a relationship of subordination. The primary goal is to achieve the mission. And that is the, 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 the superordinate imperative. That, that's why you're here. So if you're a soccer team, you're there to win the game. And you're not there to say, well, how do we balance winning the game <laughs> with uh, having shots or having less goals scored against? It really doesn't matter. It's better to win 7-6 than to lose 1-0. And you say, oh, but they only scored, uh, you know, one goal against us. Yeah, but um, you lost. So it's not really a balance. It's a subordination, but it's very difficult to try to incentivize this subordination because the moment you tell people we're all here to win uh, and you can't observe what people do directly or know even if you observe, know if people are doing the right thing or not, because many times it requires judgment and discretion. When you give people a collective incentive and you say, we all win together, or we all lose together, you become vulnerable to predators and parasites, people that will come and prey upon the system because they are like, for example, if you pay an average sales commission, like the whole, everybody sells and then you pull the money and you pay every salesperson the same. Well, all the people that are below average would love your company and they will come and work for you. And all the people that are above average are going to leave because they're going to be brought down by the average. Uh, so in a sense, average pay drives the best ones away. And uh, if I can do a little verse and mm -hmm. keeps the best one or makes the worst ones stay. And that's a, it's a very unfortunate result in economics that if you want to encourage individual excellence, you have to evaluate people by their own individual performance. But if you evaluate people through their individual performance, you're discouraging them from contributing to the team objective. And that is, in, in mathematical terms, an insoluble dilemma. If you just take self-interested agents and you try to create an organization, um, you can't. It just doesn't work. There's no clever incentive system that would solve this problem. So the book is about understanding why that's the case, but then seeing how do you manage this problem better? What can you do? And very, I would say, surprisingly for me, uh, and, and in, a, in an ironic uh, sense, the solution of the most material, the hardest problem is soft. I would say the solution to the economical problem is really spiritual because the way you have to integrate a team is not by payments, not by uh, rewards and punishments, but by inspiring them. And that's, the, that's where leadership or what I call transcendent leadership comes into play. Uh, you have to give people the opportunity to participate in a project that they feel passionate about. Not, they're not doing it just because you pay them, but they're doing it because it makes sense, because it fulfills a deep longing they have in their lives. And it is done in a way that it's ethical and makes them proud. And it also gives them the chance to connect with other people who they um, just 
crave to be in community with. Well, yeah, that, that sounds like a great place to be. So could you maybe help us go from a bit of a, a point A to point B, sort of given what is, is currently the case in many workplaces? You know, what are some of the very first steps to, to bring it into that spiritually robust, uh, purpose-filled, great place? Yeah. Okay. Let's just say that um, some of your listeners are entrepreneurs or leaders in, uh, in existing companies. The first, the first step is to find the deeper meaning of what the company does. So let's imagine that I am a doctor and I go home and I have a seven-year-old daughter that asks me, Daddy, what, what do you do? And I say, I make money. <laughs> uh, well, that's not very inspiring. You know, she, she says, oh, well, good. And I say, and if she asks me, why is that important? Oh, because I can buy nice things for you. She didn't understand that. And that's okay. We have a nice house or, you know, we can eat uh, tasty food and so on. But it's not very, very uplifting. So if I dig deeper, what do I do? Well, I, I, I cure the sick or I... Um, use medicine to make uh, people well, uh, to help them reestablish their health. But if I go deeper, it's like, well, I, I, um, I'm, when, when people are at risk and they, they have illnesses or they feel terrible or they are hurt, I help them first survive and then come back to health and, um, and so on and so forth. If I describe that as my job, as my profession, well, I, I'm, I feel uplifted. I feel happy. And my, my daughter will be happy too. And she would be proud to tell other kids at school what her daddy does. Uh, I know it sounds a little perhaps simplistic, but if you are running an organization in the market, the people that are buying your product or service are finding some way in which that product or service makes their lives better. And it makes them sufficiently better they're willing to that they are willing to part with their hard-earned cash to acquire your product or service. So don't focus, as um, Peter Drucker said, you know, don't focus on the on the drill because people don't really want drills. Focus on the hole. What people want is holes, and that's why they buy drills to make them. So the question would be, what is the human need, the human aspiration? that your product or service is helping people to address and take care of. And you need to know that, and you need to feel that in your bones, like deep inside that you're super proud of what you do. If you're not proud, like if you're not on fire, you're not going to be able to light up the people that you want to inspire. So you need to feel it inside and then be able to communicate and invite people to join you in that project. Don't invite people to to work and say, "Okay, come and put your effort, and I'm going to pay you." I mean, that, that that of course that's the economic deal, but the economic deal will only get you average performance. Well, you know, I, this was really reminding me, Fred, of a of a fun chat I had. I think I was freshly hired at, at Bain and Company. I was chatting with my fellow consultants in between some training stuff, and some, somehow it just sort of came off as like, "Hey, do we do good?" as strategy consultants. And for me, it was, it was kind of like the answer was, of course, or else why would you have ever taken this job? And so that I, I went on, I guess, what was a rant <laughs> associated with, well, what we do is we make companies more valuable, which is extremely important because 
folks who are, are saving for retirement or for college education need for the, the, the stocks in their portfolio to appreciate. And, and we help make that possible so that their, their dreams can come true. You know, nonprofits and foundations uh, within their endowments uh, have their investments placed in, in a basket of equities that, you know, individually we are, are helping make. And, and the leverage of, of us doing it is so huge in terms of being 23 years old and, you know, not having a lot of experience and yet entrusted to, to tackle things that are, are, are going to liberate you know, millions and billions of dollars of, of economic value that's most necessary. So I just about this whole rant. And, 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 and the others were kind of like, whoa, I just thought this would be a good place so I could get into Harvard Business School <laughs> or yes. something. And, and so, and I was like surprised. Like, I guess for me, I call it naive or what, but I, I just sort of assumed, but, but of course y- you would only choose a job that ha- had deep purpose for you or else you would have chosen a different job. But uh, different people, I-, I quickly learned, operate from different starting points in, in their career decision-making. Absolutely. And yet, uh, if you allow me, Pete, to challenge you a little bit, Please. I think you missed the most important, uh, the most important part of your job. Uh, when you describe the benefits, I, I agree with every, every one you, you listed. But for me, at the top of the list, not for me, I mean, economically, at the top of the list, the reason why these companies are going to become more valuable is because they will serve their customers. I mean, the real value in the economy is not the mission of giving jobs to people or money to the investors. The real value in an economy, the one that propels humanity forward, is the competition to give value to the customers. And that, that's what well, good consultants help companies do. That's what uh, the mission of every company needs to be. If not, you become a bureaucracy. Like, oh, look, we're doing so much good because we're hiring all these families. Okay, that's like 1% of the good you are doing. Don't, don't forget the 99%. Because the, the, the real good you are doing is that people are buying your product because they find it useful in their lives. And you have no idea how much value you're adding because let's just say, if I use an Apple computer, it will cost me maybe $1,000 to buy, but I would have been willing to pay $5,000. So even if Apple makes a profit of two or $300, I made a surplus value or a consumer profit of 4000 Now, nobody knows that because uh, there's no place where I say I'm willing to pay 5000 That's something only I know, how much value this computer is going to give me or how much would I be willing to pay for it. So I find it a little problematic today when people uh, talk about social enterprises or we're doing good or we hire, you know, whatever people you, you're hiring and, and, and say, well, you know, so many families eat because of us. Yes, that's true, but that's so small compared to the wealth that you're creating in terms of life richness, not, not necessarily measured by money. But, uh, you know, we at Google today is the uh, input-output com- conference for developers. And just looking at all the developments in artificial intelligence and uh, the assistant and all that, there's thousands of people here that are just day and night thinking nonstop, how can we make people's lives better? There was a clip of a, of a lady that, that had a, just a difficult handicap. I, I, I'm guessing something similar to what um, Stephen Hawking had. And the, the kind of life that she was able to live because of the products that were created, it's infinite. I mean, there, there's no money in the world that 
would pay for that uh, or that she would not be able uh, she would not be willing to pay to access the level of uh, quality of life that she's able to achieve through some of these uh, new technologies so i want to be very emphatic and, and i emphasize this in the book particularly in the last part that there's no system that we know that creates social cooperation and the growth and development of humanity like a market system where everybody opts in because they think they're getting a good deal or opts out otherwise. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like that. And and it does connect and resonate and it's easy to get kind of, you know, lost in the, in the weeds a bit. And and as we discuss this, it kind of reminds me of the, of the book, The Goal, in a manufacturing context and thinking about, we got all these performance indicators about manufacturing, but it's really just about making uh, an efficient product such that it, it can be sold profitably. And, and then that is enriching the individual end users who are engaging it. So I'd love it, Fred, if you could tackle, maybe just bring to life a little bit, some industries that might be kind of tricky in, in terms of, of finding that fulfillment and, and purpose. And I guess, I guess some of them could just be controversial in terms of like weapons or, well, I could name all kinds of controversial industries, like weapons, uh, tobacco, alcohol, certain insurance uh, drugs, insurance products, hedge funds. So could you give us a few examples of how, no, no, uh, if, if you're working here, uh, it's actually awesome in this way, or maybe you say, yeah, maybe work somewhere else. W- w- what do you think about some of the trickier ones? Well, let's start with weapons. What would be the need that a person buying a weapon could satisfy? And, and let's just say an honorable need. I, I'm not talking about a, a criminal buying a, a gun to, to, to murder people or to rob them. I'm talking about good people. Because if you're going to be inspired, you have to believe that your mission is conducive to, to some higher good. If you can't come up with anything, then you shouldn't work in that industry. I've never worked with uh, gun manufacturers, but I'm, I'm, I've heard the argument. So I'm sure you have heard them too. So what would be the argument for a noble goal that weapons could could pursue? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I said weapons, I was originally thinking of, you know, tanks and jets and, and nukes uh, for nations. But I okay. guess on the and personal... That works too. Mm-hmm. That works. I mean, I, I mean, what would be the, the reason to, let's just say you're working for McDonnell Douglas and, uh, and you are a leader and you want to inspire some young people to come work there. I suppose you would say, you know, we are are keeping uh, our servicemen and women safer uh, with these offerings. We can rest easier in our homes, in our nation, knowing that uh, we can resist the, the threat of a, of a foreign power who would seek to kill and enslave us. And, and we don't even have to worry about that much on a day-by-day basis because we have brave people equipped with these uh, useful tools. I will, I will work for you. All I right. Mean, that's <laughs> inspiring. I mean, again, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not claiming that this is true and that there are no, you know, weapons manufacturers that are evil. I mean, there are weapons manufacturers that work for the other guys too and they create the, the possibility of aggression or dominance or, or, or all these horrible things. But, but it, at, at best, it's possible to work for a certain kind of, you know, military-grade weapon manufacturer or even a gun manufacturer and say, yeah, this is about protection. It's about um, maintaining the quality of life, of sleeping uh, sleeping well, 
because uh, you're not worried that uh, any thug can come and abuse you. And uh, that, that's inspiring. I mean, I, again, it's not the weapon, but is it, what is it that the weapon allows a human being to do that will allow this person to take care of important human concerns in an ethical way, meaning without uh, aggressing or without uh, hurting other people in a, a violent manner. Okay, thank you. Well, so now that that is is well established in terms of your you view a purpose in terms of of how folks are enriched by the existence of of your product and service. So, if if we zoom into sort of the the day in day out of of work life, uh, how can we stay connected to that and and let the the meaning really serve to be energizing and and empowering? day after day. And, and I'd particularly like to hear that from the, the vantage point of maybe not a, an executive or, or a founder, but perhaps a, a manager who, who only has a few direct reports. Yeah. Well, uh, let's start at the bottom. Uh, not even a manager with an okay. individual contributor. There was a, there's a great story that I found, uh, and I use it in the book, that refers to President Kennedy's visit to NASA. I think it was 1962. He went to NASA and was touring the facility. And there was a custodian that was mopping the floors and just being gracious. Uh, the president stopped and said hello and, and asked him, so what's your job here? And he said, I'm helping to put a man in the moon, Mr. President. Mm-hmm. That is culture. That is a culture that clarifies every day what are we here to do. So he was certainly mopping the floors, but that's not the way he felt about it. Just like um, it's different to put brick over brick than to build a cathedral. So if you keep the cathedral or the man and the moon in mind, then everything you do takes a different meaning. And this is true. There's lots of studies. I quote several of them in, the, in, in, in my book about hospitals, for example. And you'll see the custodians in the hospitals finding a lot of meaning in uh, helping people regain their health and uh, cleaning their rooms and even chatting with them and, and bringing some joy on the nurses too. And you say, oh, these are uh, some of these are menial tasks. They have to change the sheets. Yeah, but in the process of changing the sheets, they're making contact with another human being. They are participating in their life. They're uh, giving them hope when they feel down and they are distressed. And it's it's profoundly meaningful. It, it's, it's it's almost like a, like a saintly thing to do. It's a, yeah, you're going and touching with love and compassion people who are suffering. And that, that, that's an amazing opportunity that you only get if you work in a hospital. So I know we may consider some of these things like, oh, it doesn't really matter. You're, you're just washing clothes uh, in, a, in, a, in a hospital or, or uh, you know, making rooms in a hotel. And you say, oh, those, those things are just worthless, meaningless tasks. But the truth is there are people who do find a lot of meaning in that. But it's not about the task. It's always about uh, the goal, the human concern that is being taken care of through the task. And if you're a manager, then your job is first to remember that. And second, to remind all the people in your team, what are you really doing? Maintain this awareness day in and day out. And everything we do is for that. Everything we do is to fulfill our mission. The service that we're proud to provide to the community or humanity in general. Mm-hmm. All right. 
so I'm with you there. And then you also mentioned a, a few problems that, that crop up within the organization in terms of things being uh, disorganized with disinformation or disillusion. Do you have a couple actionable steps you recommend for hitting these yes. pieces? Yes. You may have a clear mission and everybody could be aligned to the mission, but different people see different parts of the organization and have different opinions about what would be the best way to accomplish the mission. I call this touching the elephant. There's a great story of a king bringing five blind men and putting them with a, next to an elephant and telling them to describe the, the shape of the elephant. And they start arguing. Uh, one of them says, oh, the elephant is like a column touching their leg. The other says, oh, no, it's like a wall touching a side. They say, no, no, it's like a snake touching the trunk, and so on and so forth. Now, the king at the end says to them, well, you're all right and you're all wrong. You're all right because the part you are touching is really like you described, but you're wrong because you are arrogantly extrapolating the part you touch and using it to elicit or to, uh, to infer what's the shape of the elephant as a whole. And many times in organizations, we do that. People are close to some part of the organization, and they think that the whole organization is an extrapolation of the part they perceive. And the ones that see the organization are so far away, it'd be like seeing the elephant from a mile away. You can see the whole thing, but you don't have any granularity, and you don't have the details that are required to make intelligent decisions. So I call this disinformation. Different people have different information and nobody knows the whole picture with the level of granularity that's required to make intelligent decisions. So how do you solve this? Well, if people are aligned on the mission and they know how to share information in a non-arrogant way, I call it humility, then they can come together and each person can say what they see and what they infer and what they experience in their immediate environment. And then the other people can integrate that and create a pool of common information out of which they can make an intelligent decision together what would be the best way to proceed to accomplish our mission. But that requires kind of gathering the intelligence of everybody and creating this uh, collective consciousness, this group awareness that, that encompasses the information that everybody's bringing. That is surprisingly difficult to do. Uh, after. Uh, I mean, I read my book, sorry, I wrote the book. I, I was uh, having some interactions with General Stanley McChrystal, who, who wrote the, the book um, uh, Team of Teams. And it's surprising how in the military, and particularly having to fight uh, guerrilla warfare that is very decentralized, they were dealing with exactly the same problem in spades. One of the biggest managerial revolutions that McChrystal uh, triggered in the U.S. military was the creation of uh, the Special Operations Command, the Joint Special Operations Command, as a learning adaptive network, as a as a group of people who were uh, operating the, in a decentralized manner, but were creating this shared consciousness to uh, have like all their resources available to make intelligent decisions to win the war, not win each particular battle, but to achieve the mission. Very nice. Thank you. Well, well, tell me, Fred, anything else you really want to make sure to cover before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I'd say that one of the consequences of this 
revolution from money to meaning is that you can't do it as a as an addition to your personality. You can't say, well, I'm who I am, and then I'm going to do this. This uh, The inspiration to use meaning as a galvanizing force, it's, it required, uh, like, that inspiration requires you to be in a certain form, not just to do things. But who you are uh, really creates the the drive for people to follow you. You have to earn your moral authority from your life. You can't use formal authority to do this or monetary authority or economic power. You are trying to elicit the internal commitment from people so that they give what you have no way to extract. That's a nice turn of the phrase. Mm -hmm. They give what you have no way to extract. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Uh, Well, this is a a quote from uh, Mother Teresa that um, says, uh, not everybody can do great things, but everybody can do small things with great love. I find that very inspiring that this being a, a moral hero is not about having superpowers. It's about doing day-to-day things with great integrity, with great care, with great compassion. That's, uh, that's something I'd like to actualize in my life. And how about a, a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Uh, well, I'll tell you a shocking study. Uh, its favorite, but it's the fact that the the level of engagement worldwide is about 12-13%. So meaning almost 90% of the people hate their jobs. That's that's incredible that so much suffering is happening because we don't know how to work together in a way that uplifts human beings. Right. And how about a favorite book? I'd say um, from Ludwig von Mises, Human Action. It's a it's not an easy book to read, but it's a treatise in economics that uh, changed my life. Mm, interesting. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be more awesome at your job? Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> Google search and Gmail. I think they're incredible service opportunities. Right? Just, they're, they're so well designed. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours? I don't turn my phone until I finish meditating, doing my yoga exercises and going to the gym. Okay. And how about a particular nugget, a piece that you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks and and has them quoting it back to you? The distinction between a victim of circumstance or being a player and uh, responding to whatever life gives you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, Well, the best way would be to look at me, uh, my profile on LinkedIn. I've I've put uh, hundreds of short videos and papers there. They're uh, publicly available. There's also a website called conscious.linkedin.com. And uh, there's also um, well, a book at Amazon or my previous book, Conscious Business. Okay, perfect. And is there a final call to action or challenge that you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, find, find something that inspires you and then live in that space. Don't waste your life doing something that doesn't have that juice. Well, Fred, thank you so much for taking the time to share this wisdom and expertise. It's powerful stuff, and I just wish you tons of luck and and all the meaning that you're bringing to folks. Thank you, Pete. It was a pleasure talking to you. I like Fred's simple point about how your job is not really your job, but rather to help the company win and to fulfill its purpose and mission. And sometimes that supersedes the narrow job description you may have in an all-hands-on-deck situation. 
and how it's really easy to get myopic and say, ooh, that's not my job. But really, from the broader perspective, it can indeed be your job. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep303. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest, Joseph Liu, and he is talking about how to resign gracefully and optimally. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.